0: Welcome to Back from the Abyss. This is Dr. Craig Heacock. As we are now coming to realize the impressive potential of psychedelics to treat trauma and depression, we also have to face the fact that they're still illegal. This reality has led to an explosion of underground therapy, a wild west where anyone can set up shop as a shaman or therapist or healer, and the buyer must beware. Some people are finding healing in the underground psychedelic world, while others, well, they're encountering ethically challenged and or naive underground practitioners who are causing more harm than good. I wanted to spotlight an underground therapist who's actually doing this important work in a mindful, ethical, harm-avoiding way, and I'm so excited for all of you to hear from Sarah. Sarah has been doing underground psilocybin work for the last seven years, and she comes from a place of her own severe childhood trauma, a journey where she found healing with psilocybin and then felt compelled to offer this path to others. Sarah and I explore whom she works with and why, how she thinks about psilocybin in the therapeutic toolkit, how other underground therapists get themselves into trouble. And finally, She offers wisdom about how one might enter into underground therapy in a thoughtful and careful way. I was so impressed by Sarah's warmth and insight, her sense of mission, tempered by her insistence on both safety and judiciousness. I think she serves as a model for both today's underground psychedelic therapists and the soon to arrive world of medicalized psychedelics. This is such a special treat a perspective that we almost never get to hear. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did.
1: About 10 years ago, I was lucky to develop some friendships with uh, a gentleman who's from the Diné culture. And I started to do some uh, sweat ceremonies and attending some uh, more traditional Native Indigenous ceremonies. And we developed quite a beautiful friendship, and I began to have a huge respect and appreciation for that process of going through ceremony and how powerful it could be. And that, you know, kind of opened my mind. I was, I was never someone who drank during high school, or, you know, I never took any drugs. I was pretty cautious in that realm. And I just also wasn't someone who was really a real social kind of um, young kid. I was very, very focused on my work. And um, so I had never explored anything that was any kind of alternative experience or altering medicine or even medication. And so the one thing in my personal journey was coming from so much childhood and developmental trauma that I was very interested in how do we actually heal from these experiences? How do we really learn to make peace with what's happened to us and find ways to move forward and restore our capacity for connection with one another? And so because I was just sort of, even as a young, uh, in my early 20s, I was just obsessed with trying to understand this. And so that took me into reading about research that was happening at Johns Hopkins and um, really beginning to be curious about all the ways in which we were approaching how we heal and integrate trauma and some of the cutting edge understanding of of uh, ways to do that. So I ended up having a, uh, a friend who knew about my, <laughs> my obsessions with understanding trauma and uh, she said to me, "Hey, I, you know, I have this therapist who is uh, inviting me to come to a group session, and there's a South American shaman that's going to be leading a ceremony. Do you want to come?" And I was like, "Oh, okay. Um, hmm. I'm really interested in this, but who is this person, and what are they doing?" And so. I was very skeptical and I was very hesitant, but I was also deeply curious. And I went ahead and attended this session and I sort of surprised myself because everyone there seemed very normal, you know, very kind and very intentional about why they were there and and everybody really seeking their own therapeutic experiences. And this South American shaman comes into the room and probably like within the first I don't know, 20 minutes of his introductions, I suddenly found myself just grilling him. I was like, okay, you know, who are you? Why should I believe you? What is it that you're going to be giving us? What are you doing? You know, why should I trust you? And then as he began to answer my questions, I felt this heart. I felt presence. I felt a depth of appreciation and an understanding for what we were all seeking. And I felt humility. And I thought to myself, okay, okay, I think this is a safe environment to explore. So that was that was really where my journey in this work began. And over many years of personal healing and exploration, it eventually evolved into supporting others.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was your, uh, that opening original experience with the shaman, was that ayahuasca or what kind of medicine work was that?
1: It was, um, he was someone who had experience with a lot of different plants and, um, people that were there was a small group, a small gathering. And, um, and he was working with a variety of different plants, some of them known as heart openers and some of them more sort of known as, uh, the, the, Teacher end of the spectrum, which is you know psilocybin, ayahuasca, and things like that. So for me, it was a psilocybin journey, um, the first experience, and um, and eventually I would explore uh, understanding and developing a relationship to some of the other plants as well. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I share your deep interest in how we heal, what that process looks like. Looks like what's the special sauce? What are the key ingredients? And what about for you? Like, you know, we don't need to go into details of what happened to you as a kid or developmentally, but I am really curious. Maybe the sort of treatment highlights of your own journey with, with plant medicine and you know, what that looked like for you. Goodness,
1: well, I. I came from a background of a lot of childhood sexual abuse by multiple different people all throughout my journey. And it kind of put me in a place of really struggling to feel like I could trust anyone. And ultimately, I was someone who somehow found a way to keep holding on in hopes that I would find something that would help me repair and restore that sense of trust and nature played a big role in that um finding and and seeking and holding on to some place where i could feel safe and in uh in so doing i also luckily you know as the the greater intelligence of life somehow does just eventually weaves people into our path and was able to have some incredible therapists and teachers and mentors along the way um, in addition to just a really strong relationship to to nature and to animals um, that helped me hold on to some sense of hope. And when I, you know, over 10 years ago when I started into this facet of working with trauma through plant medicine work, um, it really it really opened things up in a big way. I appreciate that there's there are a lot of ways to access trauma. There are a lot of ways to unpack some of the challenging experiences that we've had and the places where we really struggle to connect with ourselves and with other people. And, um, and I don't necessarily think that plant medicine work is a you know one-trick um, pony that solves everything. I really, really don't take that perspective. I, I strongly disagree with that. I think there are a lot of modalities and a lot of things that can be incredibly effective, and what each person needs is quite unique. But for me and for many that I've met and worked with, The plant medicine work does have a capacity to really accelerate an understanding of our own trauma patterns, an understanding of the adaptations that we develop to help protect ourselves, the hypervigilant patterns that can begin to come into place, and to be able to see ourselves from quite a different perspective. I would say one of the things that was the most eye-opening in my very first experience was to, you know, unfortunately go back and relive a lot of horrific trauma, which was definitely not fun. But while it was happening, I was in a safe environment with safe, compassionate, caring people. And most importantly, I was able to have the experience without being completely overwhelmed with shame.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I recognize that in the midst of 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 the whole experience, while I'm sort of you know sobbing on the floor and, and and reliving some of the worst nightmares I've ever had, was to be able to witness it and realize, "Oh, wow, OK, yes, this is something that happened to me. This is something that's happened to many, many people, unfortunately. And there isn't something wrong with me. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not broken. And I can begin to have perspective and compassion and understanding for the way my body responded, the way my nervous system responded, the way I tried to make sense and make meaning, shape understanding for what was happening. So it was just a really accelerated way to gain perspective without getting lost in a sea of shame.
0: Mm-hmm. And this was all with psilocybin? Yes. So it sounds like, among other things, psilocybin taught you to have perspective, taught you that you are not your trauma, taught you that, I don't know if the right word, but helped you separate the shame, like start to identify that and or I guess disidentify from it
1: and exactly move
0: away from it you only work with psilocybin and it's sounding like possibly one of the reasons is that was a huge uh, catalyst for you. I'm curious, did you work with other medicines that, you know, in your own journey that were particularly helpful or maybe that were particularly not helpful that led you to think you would not want to work with those substances as a, as a guide and underground therapist?
1: Well, I mean, I'm, I have a, really appreciate the different experiences that we can have with different substances and with different plants. And I tend to try to think about it more like access points around a medicine wheel. And there are different plants that are going to help to facilitate really different experiences and open up different perspectives for us. And those are incredibly helpful for me, making the choice, to support others at a time where this really is not above board yet, you know. And so there's a huge risk in doing that. And certainly, you know, coming to terms with this decision of recognizing how important this work is, how how much people need support right now. Mm-hmm. And they need support in a variety of different ways. And to make that choice to say yes to someone in need is is one that I do with a tremendous amount of discernment, both for me and for the individual that I'm supporting. And with that in mind, I made the decision to only work with psilocybin uh, at this time because it is the medicine that we have a pretty substantial understanding research and recognition with that there's very little contraindication with, um, potential health challenges or, you know, Mm -hmm. medication issues. And Um, one that has
0: been used for many centuries.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a long history. And so because of, you know, my concern and desire to create the safest environment possible, um, I've chosen to work with psilocybin. And while I think there are other plants that for certain people would be better, you know, what we call heart openers, plants that are going to um, help to create a real sense of emotional safety and connection and a deep sense of our, um, our empathy and compassion, those are typically a better place in general for people to start with. But they can be a little bit more hard on the body physically. There can be some more challenges with health um, uh, contraindications that can come up for some people. And so I've just chosen as much as I would love to be able to do that, not to have that
0: added risk. Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and How long
0: ago was this when you you know, were sort of, I don't know if wrapping up is the right word, but you were in your own trauma healing journey, you were getting to the point where you thought, okay, I both am able and wanting to help other people on this path. And then you're deciding, okay, I'm going to start doing this work with psilocybin underground. I mean, How many years ago was this all happening?
1: Um, so I started into the work myself about 10 years ago. And three years into um, that journey, I was very quiet about it. I really didn't share with anybody about the work I was doing. But as a life coach, I work with um, clients on a regular basis with all sorts of needs, and people just began asking me, even though they didn't know that I was involved in the work myself. I was—you <laughs> had
0: a—you had a mushroom vibe.
1: I guess I did. I'm not sure. I still, to this day, I'm not sure what happens there, or how, or why that happens. But people just began to, you know, reach out and say, "Hey, I've been." have you heard about this? And, um, you know, I just really appreciate our therapeutic relationship. Would you be willing to, to sit with me through this process? And then I, you know, I, I smile and say, yeah, I've, I've heard about it. Uh,
0: <laughs> You're like, I could probably introduce you to someone hmm, Yeah, like me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that's usually, that's usually how it happens. mm mm-hmm.
0: talk more details about the whole selection process and, and what the therapy looks like but I want to first touch on this idea and you and I talked about this before we started recording that you're a life coach you've done a lot of trauma work um, on your own and with other healers but you're not a trained therapist right and so you know in the underground world I know in Colorado and I think and beyond there's some percentage of people who are licensed therapists or maybe the therapists who did the training but didn't get licensed and then there's other people from other backgrounds like you. So tell me about that journey of deciding. And I think you had started down the road of becoming a therapist and then opted against it.
1: Yeah, it's been such an unusual, well, for me, maybe seems unusual, a little strange journey. But in my early 20s, I was being my, given my sort of obsession and passion and wanting to understand and support people and really being able to transform the effects of trauma. I was pursuing my degree as a therapist, and partway into it, I just became so incredibly frustrated with the curriculum and what was being taught, and I just felt like it was a lot of, here's how you categorize and classify this person, and, you know, and this is what drug you would consider, and I just thought, oh my gosh, this is not focused on actually getting at the root of what's going on and really helping anybody, and... My frustration just kept building and building and, you know, a friend of mine approached me and she said, well, why don't you just stop? Why don't you just stay, you know, you're already reading everything on current research. You read every book under the sun. You're, why don't you just stop and take a different direction? And I looked at her and I laughed and I said, says the woman with three PhDs from Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and she says to me, "I know, I know, but you really you know you could trust yourself and you don't need it. You can always go back if you want to, but why don't you just go forward? So I sat with that and I made the decision to stop and I continued with my own um, studies and doing other programs that I thought were more on the leading edge of of trauma work and Becoming trauma informed and really taking a deep dive into somatics and attachment theory and you know some of these modalities and luckily some of these programs are open to taking in life coaches and you know so that was that was wonderful and um, now that we have this sort of renaissance and that's happening in the field of of psychedelic therapy for the first time I'm looking at it and going oh okay. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back not necessarily, because I um, feel that the education is going to provide me with something different than I already have. But because I really want to be able to do this work above board when we're in a position where that will be possible, hopefully in a few years from now. So it's been a, um, you know, uh, an an interesting journey of trying to find that line of really staying true to what feels like, what is in best service to myself and what is in best service to the clients that I'm, I'm working with and supporting Mm -hmm.
0: when you are thinking that someone is appropriate or they ask you and they just sense that vibe. How do you think about who's appropriate? Who's not appropriate? I know you are very careful in how you work, who you work with, So I'm curious, kind of your inclusion and exclusion criteria, if you will, for your work.
1: Yeah, I, I, listen, I'm not perfect, but I try my best to be discerning. And certainly someone who is struggling with a tremendous amount of mental health or has any, you know, major uh, psychological uh, instability, I don't consider myself equipped to be going down that road. i would love to get to a place where you know I do feel that way but I think it's it's important to always stay true to myself about my own scope of practice and where I feel like I can be in the best service of Mm -hmm. someone
0: Presumably a significant percentage of people who you work with, you work, I'm guessing, meet criteria for PTSD. But are there aspects of someone's um, trauma presentation that would make you say either I'm not your person and or psilocybin is not your substance?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, at, at the root of, of so many of the presentations that we see is a core, you know, is, is trauma. And trauma presents itself in so many different ways and and so many different adaptations for how we cope and deal with that. And for me, one of the most important things when I'm, um, you know, working with someone is to assess their level of resource.
0: So... Say more about that. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people in the trauma field, we use that. What does that mean? Bat that around. But I think a lot of listeners might not understand that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So for me, what that means is what kind of relationships do they have in their life where they feel safe, they feel seen, they feel supported, Um, relationships that help them to stabilize, that help them to regulate themselves. Is this person already in a place where they're so activated and so stressed by the level of trauma they've experienced and the way that their chemistry and their you know current level of um, function is impaired to the degree that they can't work, they can't get through you know daily activities? They're really they have no resources in their relationships with other people, there's a real sense of intense isolation, then that's someone who needs a whole level of therapeutic support and work that leading up to an experience like this. Mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, I know there are people in the field who will take the approach of saying, wow, this person is really hurting. We need to, you know, we need to hit this with the big guns, so to speak, and give them a big dosage of, of, plant experience. And I really don't agree with that approach at all. Mm-hmm. I think that the, that working with something like psilocybin is a profound access tool, but you have to build the foundation. You have to help create a structure for the house to be able to stand mm-hmm. on. And that often is developing our therapeutic relationship, understanding the sensitivity of someone's nervous system, understanding what their trauma history has actually been making sure that if it's with me or with someone that they have a really good rapport and therapeutic relationship where they can feel they feel like they can be themselves they feel a sense of safety they feel like they can unpack and trust who they're unpacking mm-hmm. with about the experiences that they've been through
0: yeah, yeah. Well, i'm thinking yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's say, you know, you could have, let's say person A and B. Person A has much more severe symptoms. Let's just call them trauma spectrum symptoms, but is much better resourced, has a supportive spouse, good friends, maybe another therapist, whatever, people that he or she bikes with. That might be someone you'd be more willing and ready to work with versus someone who maybe has significantly fewer symptoms or less um, troublesome symptoms, but is very alone. Is not so resourced. But that, that makes me wonder, so what, how do you handle uh, when you're working with someone, let's say has a very supportive spouse, like, would you ask to meet the spouse? Do you, how do you direct people around the whole idea, idea that this is, this is on the DL, you know, this is underground, do I mean, you give people very specific instructions or asks around you know their key supports, their key re- resources you know, knowing that uh, those are such a crucial part of healing and of safety, but there's to some degree this needs to be secret
1: So yeah, just to go back and answer another um, uh, side note to like the framing of your question, which is that when I'm working with someone who doesn't have uh, a lot of resourcing relationships, they don't have a lot of stable relationships in their life. I make a point to work with that person anywhere from a month to six months, sometimes even a year before even considering agreeing to supporting the uh, the psilocybin work. And that's to really help give them resources for not only a safe therapeutic relationship, but beginning to get in touch with the language of the body, um, understanding how to be with their emotions and not get completely overwhelmed, being able to regulate from being, uh, you know, in a state of of fear and or overwhelm and being able to come back into a state of connection and, and rest and digest. So working with someone in helping them develop the resources that they need, uh to really be able to take in the fullness of this experience in a way that doesn't completely overwhelm them to go back and answer your question about what about bringing in supportive relationships i think every person what they you know what helps them to feel safe is going to be unique and i think bringing in spouses or you know one or two friends to be with them during the process can be really powerful I mean, typically this work was done in indigenous cultures where you grow up in a, you know, village environment and you have these incredible relationships around you that understand your life, that understand your life journey. They're there to help you at, you know, key points of rites of passage and you're not alone. It's not an isolated process. In this space, we're, we're in a time where we're trying to come at it from a little bit more of a clinical approach. We're also having to come at it because of, you know, where things sit legally. We're having to be very careful and, you know, not sharing too much information. And so it's, again, it just kind of comes back to discernment. I listen to what's happening for this person, what their actual desires are for what would help them feel safe and feel like they're in a safe place and feel supported in their process. And then we we talk about it. I think doing small group sessions can be incredibly powerful and you have others around you that have a shared experience and can really support you and you can support them. If I'm gonna do that for me personally, I try to work with each person um, at least a few times individually before bringing the whole group together as a small group. There are facilitators out there that will do, you know, just give everybody anything and do these big, massive groups that's supposed to be group processing and not to, you know, I'm sure that there are some really beautiful and very profound therapeutic processes that come out of that. For me personally, I like to keep it really focused and really intentional Mm -hmm. and, and quite small.
0: So it sounds like with the family question or the including support, it's very case by case. mm Yeah. Yeah. Do you have specific kinds of rule outs? Um I'm thinking a couple that pop in my head are someone who say has had an episode of psychosis or someone who has been suicidal, whether that's the day before or twenty years before. You know, in my work it's interesting, it's kind of the opposite because when I meet people and they've never been suicidal or they've never abused drugs, I'm shocked. You know, like, mm-hmm. wow, that's great. Like you've actually never tried to kill yourself. That's fantastic. But you know, I, I um, you know, I like working with really, actually I like working with dangerous cases. I feel like that's kind of my calling, but I would imagine for you for a whole bunch of reasons, dangerous cases are not what you're drawn to, but are there certain kinds of things in, in a, in a client's, you know, either resource uh kind of present resource capacity and, or history that you would just have a hard no and say, you know, psilocybin work and, or, work with me is not with that substance is not in the cards.
1: Yeah. So certainly someone who struggled with psychosis, I don't think that this, um, at least what we understand about this work and and how we go about it. I think that we've got to do a lot more research and study there about if it's helpful and exactly how and how to administer that in a way that would be helpful if we discovered that it even is. And so that's not an area that I feel comfortable exploring around in. I could do more damage than good and would not want to be in that position. Someone who struggles with suicidal ideations, if they're in a place where they're really, where where that kind of activation is front and center, to me, the most important thing is to start to work with the, the early attachment wounds and begin to help them develop safe relationships and feeling some sense of safety and connection. Now, there are plant experiences that can do that. And they can do that in some pretty profound ways. Personally, if I'm, if I'm working and, and someone's approaching me and saying, I, I want your support with this and I want to try this, and they're struggling with you know, suicidal ideation, then I'm going to ask them, okay, who's your therapist? Who's the therapist that you're working with? Or who's a psychiatrist that you're working with? Let's let me talk to them. And let me find out how comfortable they feel with us making a collaborative team effort, and really discussing and, you know, working with your with you on this process, and just going step by step and assessing how you're doing. Mm -hmm. So there have been times that I've done that. And that I'm open to doing that. One of the the things that's incredibly beautiful about this kind of therapeutic experience is that some of these psychedelic therapies enable someone to have a much bigger perspective of their life, of a sense of the divine uh, connection to um, the way that spirit moves through all things, a sense of oneness uh, an ability to trust that there's a greater intelligence in life and that can go a long way towards shifting someone who's in a place of suicide uh having suicidal ideations and so um it can be incredibly incredibly helpful and really therapeutic but it definitely has to be approached with with good discernment and a a, to me a a team of support
0: When you've decided that someone seems adequately resourced and has enough sort of, I don't know, psychological health to do this deep work, how do you, and I, I know this is a complicated question, but how do you think about preparation? And I, I know it's individual and it, it's, yeah, it's a case-to-case basis, but just what are your general principles you think about when trying to get someone ready for this kind of deep work? Yeah.
1: At the very minimum, um... Let's say I'm working with someone who already has a lot of experience, they're really familiar with you know, listening into their bodies, they're comfortable going into some challenging material, they seem to be in good touch with and aware of some of their emotions, then I might do something like three to five 90-minute coaching sessions to really understand more about their story and to learn a little bit about their system. How sensitive is their nervous system? You know, how do they tend to um, pendulate? What are those resourcing relationships? And so I will, you know, do at least three to five sessions to really get to know someone's personal journey and story before going in if they seem like they really have a lot of kind of tools in the box already.
0: Do you find that most or maybe almost all people who you're working with as you do these you know initial prep sessions you're you're identifying targeting trauma as the the primary thing,
1: yes, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, from my perspective, that's really at the root we i I've come to see that our bodies and our psyches and our you know our spirits our hearts we are incredibly good at sort of just innately dealing with challenges and stressors. But we're living in a time where the majority of those challenges and stressors have come from our relationships with one another. The trauma has become relational. And so when we go through traumatic experiences, unlike the rest of the animal kingdom, when they come through a challenge, they come back into a safe environment and safe relationships, and the danger has passed. When we go through a challenging experience, when we come out of it and our nervous system is trying to orient to what's around us, most of those dangerous relationships are still all around us. And in that case, we begin to fragment, right? We have to disassociate, we have to find a way to survive and find a way to keep functioning. And so it's, it's taking the time to really get at those trauma patterns, and understand the way that each person has developed those self protective strategies to help them survive and begin to start a pathway towards repair and and transforming those particular patterns
0: mm-hmm. I would imagine part of preparation and even you as the facilitator catalyst is to think about dosage because um, you know psilocybin is a very, very different beast at small versus medium versus high doses. Do you have a general kind of, you know, way of thinking about how to approach the dose question, and you know, how is how does that relate to both patient characteristics and also the types of trauma or depth of trauma?
1: My motto is start low and go
0: slow. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I was just talking about that. I think with a med student the other day. Start low, go slow. Yeah,
1: yeah. and. There's a couple of reasons. One is especially as I'm just getting to know someone, I wanna I wanna get a sense for how their body processes this medicine. You know, are they someone who, who um digests and processes things really quickly or are they someone who has kind of a delayed effect where, you know, suddenly two hours later they're they're noticing that something's happening? Um so getting to know how their whole physiology processes um, the medicine is important.
0: And what the, is low? We we'll start low. Um, like what? Give numbers. Like what, what? does that look like?
1: Yeah. So like, uh, can be one or one point five milligrams of psilocybin, and and just letting someone begin to kind of feel that something's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that if you if you go with this approach, which is tempting to do when you're in this position, I would say that you know, if I think back in the beginning, when someone would come to me and say, like, I, you know, I really want to have this this profound experience. I've heard about this work, and please, will you sit with me? And I want to do four grams of mushrooms, mm-hmm. and I would be like, mm, okay. Uh, and what what I would find is one of two things. If you take that approach or you allow or support someone else in taking that approach, you either get this experience that can be incredibly overwhelming, right? Like there's all this unprocessed trauma or repressed memories or, you know, suddenly it's like the the hose of has been clamped down for, for years and years and now we're trying to send through it the amount that you would send through a fire hose, but we're dealing with a garden hose. You know, <laughs> It's just the whole system is getting overwhelmed. And that that can be in itself can be a little bit of a, for some people can be a traumatic experience. And so you can take that route of going too much, too fast and overwhelming someone. The other is that when someone's not feeling safe, we can we can go into that flight or fight dissociative space and flood ourselves unknowingly with opioids that block the experience and so people will say you know i've had I've had three grams of mushrooms, and I'm not feeling anything mm-hmm. you know nothing's nothing's happening here and um when i when I witness or hear or see something like that, um even on a slightly lower dosage, like you know. Two grams of mushrooms I always know this is not the time to give more mm-hmm. this is not the time to give somebody more substance this is the time to actually slow things down and recognize that this person's system is is pretty scared yeah. right? whether they're aware of it or not there's a lot of resistance to what's happening and so we need to take some time to work with that
0: and which just, is just the opposite which of what so many clinicians therapists underground people do is like oh there's not a response you know give more ketamine give more psilocybin give more mdma and uh yesaj Rasvi talked about this phenomenon on this podcast in the um, healing trauma with psychedelics episodes in season one and yeah and it's so counterintuitive and he talked about this that you see someone who's basically in an endorphin shutdown blockade and yeah really you want to back off But the temptation would be, especially because people are there with expectations and a lot of pain, you think, okay, I want to give them a big experience that's going to really shift things, but it can go the other way.
1: Yeah, yeah, it absolutely can. And so I try to help people with their expectations going in, just to realize and recognize that some of these things can happen. And that if we do, instead of trying to pressurize the system with more we're gonna slow things down Mm -hmm. take our time to work with what's here and if someone says well you know that's not the route that i want to take then i'll say that's okay i really understand that i'm not your facilitator Mm -hmm. you know please please you know feel free to keep keep going on your journey and explore someone that feels like it's a good match for you but
0: what's the highest you would go for someone getting worked up slowly steadily and they're doing really well and you're thinking, yeah, deeper work makes sense. I mean, do you have kind of a cap where you end or?
1: Yeah, I, um, I, and if someone's been doing the work for a while and they have processed a lot of good material and they feel really comfortable and safe in their own bodies doing that kind of work, then, you know, I would, depending on how a person processes the medicine, I would probably keep a max at three and a half to four Mm -hmm. grams. You certainly, you know, people can go higher than that and, you know, take themselves into the stratosphere of of, uh, spiritual experiences. But in terms of really focused therapeutic work, um, I think the lower dosages are really where it's at. Um, and, And really giving someone those Internal resources that they need to develop a different relationship to themselves and to deepen their capacity for intimacy with others.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting you say that because that's kind of my sense with ketamine that the higher doses of ketamine, like I often use with people with IV, it can be really good when they're suicidal or deeply depressed or just have profound vegetative symptoms. But for people who want to do exploratory trauma work and really get in there, it's the, the lower dose cap you know, ketamine assisted psychotherapy lozenge sessions oral ketamine low dose you know, two to three hour exploration that that seems to be yeah. a, a much better angle
1: yeah I completely agree that's my experience as well mm-hmm.
0: what about set and setting, you know, day of, so you think, you know, think who's appropriate, who are you comfortable working with? Who do you think is appropriate for psilocybin and you've gotten to know them and you're starting low, going slow. And what does that day look like? And what do you think about when you're setting up a, an environment for, um, and it sounds like sometimes you do one-on-one and sometimes you have a small group. Yeah. Yeah. How How do you think about setting that up?
1: Typically I try to go to the client. So I will go to their home or their space where they feel the most comfortable. And um That's
0: so good. I've not heard of that. Yeah. That yeah. other people I know that do underground work, you go to them. Right. That kind of makes sense though, because you talked about trust and safety. Sorry to interrupt you here, but I'm yeah, I'm very struck by that. That yeah. I can imagine that it's so comforting that you show up and I'm here in your space you know on your couch or right yeah hmm.
1: yeah it's it's very intentional choice on my part to um to think about all the things that are going to help someone to feel the most at home inside themselves and to feel that sense of safety you know and being on their own bed or on their own couch or you know in you know a place where they feel comfortable wearing their pajamas or having access to their favorite teas or um, and how I'll,
0: great when you sh- you're so much better than a pizza delivery when you ring the <laughs> doorbell, they're like, she's here. <laughs> or or maybe not, maybe fearful, but I can imagine it's probably the most interesting thing that's come to their door in a while. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Also too, with the psilocybin work, I mean, it lasts a good long while, right? And for some people that, that process things a little bit more slowly, it can be a pretty substantial amount of time. And so, you know, I will sit with them for, six hours, and then for someone to be able to just, you know, draw themselves a hot bath and roll into bed or, you know, be able to stay in their living room listening to beautiful music or it's, it's a much, um, it's a much, to me, it's a much better therapeutic environment than I might create in a, in a separate space that's less familiar to them.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you make any recommendations around, space in the home or lighting or even, you know, spouse at home. Do some people Mm -hmm. say, yeah, my wife's going to be downstairs or, you know, my brother's going to be in the living room. I wonder, do you have things that you ask people to consider, you know, as you show up at their place?
1: Yes. Yeah. So, you know, if it's a a home with young kids, it's, it's time to get a babysitter and that those kids go to a slightly different space so that you're not distracted and thinking about care for them candlelight is wonderful, or very low dim lighting can be really helpful because there's just a lot of stimulus that's happening inside. And when we can start to kind of quiet down and minimize the stimulus happening outside, it it helps us stay focused on what we're doing. And I will bring, you know, a music list and um and bring music for them. And then when clients get more comfortable, I'll, you know, share that with them and they can keep it going on their own if they prefer it. and. Chris creating soft spaces. You know some some people as a result of all the beautiful work that's happening in a, in the clinical research realm will um think like oh I need a, a a single bed or you know a stiff couch and some eye shades and and just not move for the next 6 hours or whatever it is. I don't agree with that. I think
0: um are eye shades a part of your work?
1: Um it depends on what we're doing. I think they can be helpful to bring that attention inward. And for people who tend to get really distracted, it can be very helpful. But I also, especially, you know, if there's a a spouse that comes to join the session or a good friend or something that's there, to be able to be seen and to be able to look at others and have some of those relational experiences and a sense of attunement and to really feel someone's there with you is very therapeutic and very healing in a lot of cases. So, um, you know, I, I try to stay away from this very sterile clinical type of feeling and let, let people be a little bit more natural in their, in their process and, and follow where their body wants to take them.
0: Mm -hmm. And what about the one-on-one versus small group sessions? Do you have sort of a, you know, a way of thinking about that, or is that more um, client preference or maybe level of resourcing?
1: Uh, if someone has a lot of, um, they're very symptomatic, they've got a lot of unprocessed trauma, they, they're they going to need some more individual, really focused time. They're going to need more of a chance to really unpack the, the nuances and the details and the challenges of what's happening for them. Bringing in a spouse or a close friend that sits with them during their session can be beautiful. And otherwise, I would work with them individually until you know we've kind of cleared things out a little bit more and um, before considering uh, small group work. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I'm guessing you probably haven't had a lot of times that went bad because you sound like you're very careful about who you work with. But also, since you've been doing this a long time... And uh, I'm wondering if you've had some experiences that didn't go well that you learned some lessons from that made you think, okay, next time I'm gonna <laughs> check these boxes. Anything like that in your in all of your work?
1: You know, I've I've been blessed not to have a too terribly much go wrong. I think because I am so cautious. But I would say a couple of things one is in the beginning, just that mistake of when someone is sort of putting the pressure on and says, hey, I, you know, I want, I want you to give me a booster. I want more. I want a higher dosage. I'm not feeling anything here. Give me something more. Um, You know, I think in the beginning, I would cave to that. And, um, and it was a good learning curve to realize that, well, that really didn't do anything. You know, that didn't do anything. And there was something that was happening in that space that I needed to recognize and listen and slow down and attune to and show up for, so um, that was a good learning curve. The other I would say, and this is something that i still I still feel a little challenge around, which is just recognizing that when we start to unpack this early developmental Um, childhood trauma, and we start to unpack some of these attachment wounds. People really need you to show up. You know, they really need to know you're consistently going to be there. And if there's a space in which that's not possible, and you start to really show up in a certain way in that therapeutic environment, and... um, you know, you start to open up some of these early attachment wounds and you let someone know, like, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere. You know, I understand what happened. And you're working on that repair, you know, and then, like, for me, I, I travel a lot. I have a my I have a very full work schedule. And, and someone, you know, says, well, I, you know, need to do, I'm, I'm looking to do another session. And suddenly I look up and I realize, oh, shoot, I'm going to be gone for a month and a half. You know, like, we've just done this really profound session. I've given them a lot of reassurance that I'm here with them, that I care deeply that I'm going to show up. And now suddenly, I have to because I have other commitments. I'm traveling for the next month and a half, like, holy crap, that was terrible. So I'm, I'm, I've been learning to really be clear about what I can support and, letting, and and setting those realistic expectations and also just being careful about how many clients I take on um, at any one given time. Um, so just, they can all
0: get what they need.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Are there patient you know, or client characteristics or kind of clinical history that makes you think, okay, this is going to be a potential home run? Let me just give an example. So with the ketamine IV, I am work, I do people who have bipolar depression, severe, um, with sort of vegetative features and suicidality, those people are home run. Like almost all of them are going to get way better. And, you know, when those people show up, I'm so excited because I think, okay, this will almost surely help you a lot versus people who come who are racked with anxiety and their depression mostly comes out of an anxious, um, picture, uh, they don't respond as well. And so I find myself tempering my expectations and it, even changing the way I talk about it with them. So are there kinds of, again, people or, or presentations that show up that you think this is exactly what psilocybin is
1: Yeah, I think that when you allow yourself to go right at the heart of trauma patterns, um, you're going to have a profound effect. There are times where psilocybin certainly can be used similar to ketamine, where you create a much bigger sort of spiritual experience that helps someone to ground themselves within a bigger meaning of what's happening on the planet at this time, and a sense of connectedness, which is really profound. But when we're working in those lower dosages, uh, if you develop your skills in understanding what's needed relationally, understanding how to really work with someone's nervous system, becoming uh, well-versed in working with developmental traumas and unpacking trauma history, as you focus in on that, With a little bit of psilocybin on a board, the body and the nervous system knows how to heal itself. And it's always going to have a pretty substantial ripple effect if you're taking the time with those things.
0: Mm -hmm. How would you compare ayahuasca and psilocybin? You know, I I hear uh, some of my patients talking about having experiences with both of those. You know, I've heard it described that, you know, DMT is kind of. Uh, psilocybin on steroids and then i've heard a number of people who've experienced both that trauma wise um therapeutically they they have a lot of similarities which would make sense because dmt and psilocybin are very closely related molecules
1: it's a good question um and i th- would say that i have done some work with ayahuasca myself and my own personal journey it's not something that i would feel at all equipped to facilitate I have seen in my own personal experience and I've seen with others that ayahuasca can take us into some pretty interesting places. (laughs) And so I think there are a lot of similarities to psilocybin. And I think anybody who's wanting to do ayahuasca would be good to consider doing psilocybin work for a year or two before even approaching ayahuasca. It would be a good preparation. I've heard, you know, in in shamans that I've worked with, like, that they consider ayahuasca the ultimate teacher plant. and um, And it's not where you start. You know, some people that are so excited and enthusiastic because this work has gotten so much recognition over the last several years, and people hear about you know, the effects of ayahuasca, and they go running to South America to have a, you know, an enormous experience. And, and in some cases, it's, it's really helpful for certain people, and, you know, gets them off in the right direction. And that's okay, that's great. But typically, when you come back to where a lot of this work began, which was in indigenous ceremony, they would not approach something like that you know, until you have been through many different layers of rites of passage. And that's, you know, developing that understanding of working with different challenges within yourself and in your relational experiences with others and evolving your understanding and your relationship to life itself. So, um, you know, I don't think that I'm qualified to really speak sufficiently to the differences, except to say that I think it can, that ayahuasca, the depth and breadth of where you can go is a bit more intense than psilocybin. Mm-hmm. And I personally do not approach that lightly. Um, as I'm sure you're probably not surprised. But for me, I have to, you know, find someone who's had a long lineage and a deep understanding of that medicine Um, because I've had some pretty pretty profound experiences that have taken me a couple of years to come back from. Mm -hmm. I I would never presume to facilitate something like that because I just, I didn't grow up, um, you know, with that kind of uh understanding and relationship with that plant which i think is really important
0: mm-hmm. you don't work with mdma but um presuming you have at least some personal experience or or know people who have how do you feel that fits in the trauma treatment realm yeah
1: i think the mdma work is wonderful and uh it's again it's that beautiful heart-opening experience, and starts to really help people repair a relationship, which, in a lot of ways, is such an important foundation. It can be, you know, a really good entry process before doing something like psilocybin. But it's again back to the discernment and safety and risk of someone like me doing this underground. Um, I I would love to be able to do some mdma sessions with clients before psilocybin sessions and i just because of the potential possible health risks that could be there i've just decided not to Mm -hmm. um but i do think it's it's it is it can be incredibly therapeutic um when facilitated well
0: Mm -hmm. and mdma has a lot of interactions with psych meds and psilocybin the, the interactions are more a lot of psych meds just kind of block the effect of psilocybin but yeah. MDMA and a lot of psych meds, it can go badly. So that, and again, a lot of people showing up at, um, you know, your door, or my door are on psych meds. They, so.
1: they are. And some people won't tell you, mm-hmm. you know, because they, they
0: don't want to get excluded. They, yeah.
1: Anymore. They, they want the experience so badly that they won't tell you. And I'm, you know, I'm just not willing to find myself in such an incredibly risky, compromised situation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when, when someone's on psych meds and they say, I want to do a psilocybin session, I let them know, like, you need to talk with your doctor, you need to talk with your psychiatrist about how they feel about it and the possibility of weaning yourself off leading up to a session and then easing yourself back on. Um, because it's not going to be terribly effective for you to be on this medication taking psilocybin at the same time. Mm
0: If you had a good friend uh, or family member who was going to seek out underground work, what general pieces of advice or counsel would you give him or her? Oh, gosh,
1: it's so hard. Um, it's so hard because right now it's it's really, we're in a situation where it's very much like the Wild West. You have so many people on every corner calling themselves a shaman. You have really well-meaning people who want to get into this work and have had one or two sessions and suddenly they decide, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Everybody should do this. Let me help you do this. But they have no training, no background, no understanding of working with trauma. They um, over-facilitate sessions instead of leaving people the space to process what is naturally and organically coming through. So it's, it's such a hard... It's, it's a very challenging time for people to navigate if they're wanting to do this work. I would say the best thing that you can do is ask a lot of questions, get to know, you know, if you discover that somebody is doing underground work, take your time in getting to know them. Get to know how they facilitate, you know, work with them outside of doing any kind of plant medicine work. If they're doing group sessions of some kind and you're interested and open to that, go sit in and don't take anything. Mm. You know, go sit in on a few sessions and don't take anything. Um,
0: But I bet this rarely happens because people are so excited to do underground work and the underground therapists I think are excited because you know they have this amazing tool. And I, my sense is people just jump right into it. But what you're saying is, wait, this is such important, vulnerable, um, profound, and potentially psychologically risky work that to just dive in with someone who you don't really know, who you haven't formed a prior relationship with, that that's sketchy.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. Um, because so much can open up so quickly, Especially if you're working with someone who's just shoveling out high dosages um, so much can happen so quickly and if you don't have those therapeutic relationships in place and this person who's you know facilitating doesn't really have good resources for helping you unpack what's coming up, it can be really destabilizing now it's not that you know we always want to stay in this perfect window of tolerance where nothing is ever destabilizing. I'm not saying that at all. Um, But when you are going into something that's destabilizing, you want to have, you want to be prepared. And you want to be working with people that you feel like, yeah, I feel comfortable working with this person for a while. I feel like this person can really hold this container with me. You know, the whole intention for doing this work is for it to be healing you know, to go in and to heal some of these trauma wounds. And so we need to be forming connections and relationships that are going to really support that and really be able to show up for that. So I think there are a lot of people out there doing incredible work right now and like me are taking the risks to do that. Um, And I would take your time to really listen when you're with this person. How do you feel? When you're, you know, um, taking the time to watch the way they work, how do you feel? How much does it give you a sense of safety, a sense of peace, a sense of um, okay, this person has experience, and so I feel safe trusting them with my process. It's the the medicine. People might sort of take the perspective of like, hey, this medicine can do and does everything, so I, you know, I'm just gonna do it on my own, or I'm gonna. Just whoever who will give it to me, let me get this party started. The medicine is a tool. It's an access tool. And it's a very, very powerful one. But you want to be with a really good therapeutic guide who can help you use that tool in an effective way. Mm
0: -hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about safety. And I think there's a whole other layer of safety, which is the client journey or safety and the... Underground therapist guide safety because number one, if you are the journeyer, uh, client, person doing the plant medicine, you are in a very vulnerable space. And so I wonder, I and mean, there's already been so many really terrible things that have happened in, in the distant past and very recently of both a, above and underground therapists um, crossing sexual boundaries and, and doing real harm. So I w- I wonder about the client's safety but then also your safety the therapist safety you know I had I had a uh situation last year yeah it was last year where a woman who'd been doing ketamine maintenance had a psychotic break a couple months after a ketamine session and she called me and she said you sexually assaulted me during the, my IV and I said what she oh, said yeah and I'm going to have to report you I may have to go to the police now fortunately thank goodness I have a medical assistant who is in there the whole time. And part of the reason I have a medical assistant is this very reason is because my safety. You know, I, um, and it turned out later as she came out of that psychosis, she apologized and, you know, we healed that. But it scared the daylights out of me. And, it you know, it made me think that anyone who's doing this kind of work, particularly if you're a man, you know, I just can't imagine being an underground therapist working solo as a man. Like to me, that seems insane. Unless perhaps you maybe had a video camera going, again, for your safety and for the client's safety. You know, I think there's been way, way fewer, you know, incidents of female therapists and and healers crossing sexual and physical boundaries. It happens for sure. But in general, men are the perpetrators. So I worry a lot both in the underground space and the above ground space that, you know, let's say psilocybin under MDMA or FDA approved in the next few years, which I'm hoping they will be, what happens in these therapy rooms all over the country when there's a solo and say woman or a male therapist and a solo client slash patient, and this really vulnerable space is created and both people are at significant risk of either false accusations or genuine boundary violations.
1: It's such a good point. And I think, you know, for that reason, it's wonderful if you can have someone who sits in on the session. Um, yeah, I'm like, similar to you, I, I think if I was a male doing this, I would be taking a very different approach as it relates to that, because that would be really scary. Being a female, there is a little bit more, um, l- less likelihood that, that some of that, Some of that would get projected onto me. But one of the spaces that I think people who do this work, you will eventually discover and learn and hopefully come to terms in peace with it. But if not, it's very important to prepare yourself for all of the transference and projections that happen in these spaces as someone is unpacking their particular trauma history And there will be a point where you become their mother, there will be a point where you become their father, there will be a point in which you may um, become a perpetrator of some kind. And um, hopefully, as you're working through the session, when you come out the other side, they come to a place of like, Oh, thank you for being willing to hold that with me. I see you, I appreciate it. Um, But, you know, sometimes it takes a few sessions for people to unpack that. Now, for me, I tend to prepare clients to say, these are some of the things that can happen. These are, you know, you may start to see me as your super controlling mother. Um, you may start to see me as, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I'm, you know, very clear that uh, I'm never going to do, I'm never going to cross any kind of sexual boundary. I'm never going to cross any kind of physical interaction that um, that they don't want to that they aren't asking for even just like being able to touch or hold someone's hand right so very very clear communications around that but even with that said when people are in process uh, unpacking and processing this material a lot of their history is going to show up in the room and you really have to hold your seat and prepare yourself for that and
0: and maybe seek sort of council supervision curb, yes. curbside afterwards, which, yes. again, I do that. But I've wondered that with underground people, who do they have to to bounce these incredibly powerful right transferences on and, and what you take from the room? And I'm just hoping people that work underground have at least someone who's really wise and and insightful who can work with them because I think working in isolation you know I had an attending in residency who used to say (laughs) say, if you go off into private practice excuse me (laughs) private practice on your own you're going to get wacky he said you're going to start doing wacky things and you're going to believe your wacky ideas and I and I think what he gets at is when we're siloed alone and particularly doing this work this really deep work you're at risk of believing, you know, doing wacky things and believing your own wacky ideas.
1: Yeah, I think too, like even in this work, because the, the plant medicines can open things up in such a profound way, it can, people can get a little bit of an ego trip on it. You know, like, oh, look at what I was able to do. No, 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 no. That was not you. You're holding a container, you're facilitating a space and your client is doing this work you know they their their whole nervous system their psychology their body is in the process of balancing itself of healing itself and you get to walk alongside them in that journey that's an incredible honor you know that's not you so you know i think that keeping that in check is important and as you said i mean for me i don't know a lot about what other people are doing, but I do, you know, I seek support from others. Um, I have a, you know, good circle in multiple different um, therapeutic backgrounds that I process and discuss case clients with anonymously, um, you know, and continue to always keep in check and question, Hmm. okay, my client's going into this experience, what's happening in my system? You know, where am I going with it and what meaning am I giving it and continuing to track myself at the same time because our nervous systems co-regulate with each other. You know, we are designed to empathize and to connect and to relate with each other. And some of those are really, really good in this space. But when we have our own trauma histories that we bring to the table, it's very important to keep all of that in check and and make sure that we're maintaining good, safe, healthy boundaries. Mm -hmm.
0: so as we're wrapping up i'm i'm guessing i could i'm guessing i know how you might answer this but I'm curious why you do this work because this is, you know, you have an uh, above ground career and life and, um, you're successful in that, but you also, you're doing this thing, which is illegal in which you have to act in very difficult spaces and places and maintain your integrity and you're doing it alone. And as you said, you seek out support, but really, I would think this is one of the world's loneliest jobs to, to do this on the down low and you know, why why do you take the risk
1: it's such a good question because it it does feel like an a real edge and i think it comes back to just my own personal journey with trauma and really a deep need to know that we're doing all that we can to start to shift the just tsunami of trauma that we're, we're all swimming in, you know, it's had such a profound ripple effect for so many generations and on so many people's lives, and it's really reaching such a critical point. And I think, for me personally, I, I need to know that I'm doing everything that I can to be in service of that transformation and so while i'm very discerning and and tend to be quite cautious and very careful because there's so much risk involved um and really taking the time to get to know those clients that i'm going to choose to do this work with but it's very difficult for me when all those you know all those good markers are in place and i see someone you know having those good resources and and yet they've got some really particular facets of their own trauma that they haven't been able to work through. And I know the power of this work. I just, I can't say no. You know, I can't say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to help you.
0: Um, It almost seems like like a moral obligation. Like, you know... That's how it feels. Yeah, you know that there is a way of healing and the federal laws say no, but... You and many 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 other people have seen that there is there's there 's a way out, and it 's just that the uh, federal government is not approving it right now, but Yet. again, within the next few years, psilocybin very well yeah. will be medicalized, and maybe yeah. i can I can see in Colorado it even getting legalized before it 's medicalized
1: yeah i'm my like so many of us, my fingers and toes are really crossed for that and excited about the possibilities i mean of course. It'll come with its own set of consequences that we will all be navigating, but I think it is incredibly important that this work gets out there, and and hopefully gets out there in really safe, effective, therapeutic ways. So I'm I, that that day cannot get here fast enough for me.
0: Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. It was abundantly clear to me through this story that Sarah puts her clients first, that for her, caution and safety are paramount, and that slowing down the process is almost always better than speeding it up. When in doubt, she defaults to know, or at least to let's wait and get to know each other better. I so hope that her experience and wisdom can help other psychedelic therapists not fall into the traps of hubris of going too fast to reach some desired peak experience or ignoring the essential boundaries of the therapeutic container. The best psychedelic therapists are therapists first. They understand transference and countertransference. They know what to do when the boundaries start to dissolve. They default to caution. They come from a place of humility, curiosity and reverence.